Thanks for pressing play. This episode is exclusively for people who want to have a personal breakthrough in their own performance. You see, we have some legendary guests today. Uh, two, actually, who are co-authors of a very, very impressive new book called Learned Excellence. The first is Alan Eagle. He's an executive communication coach, and he spent 16 years working with the top people at Google. And he's written several other books uh, and is most well known for his celebrated book, Trillion Dollar Coach, about the legendary Silicon Valley coach, Bill Campbell, who I was honored to know and get to spend some time with. God rest his soul. Bill was the uh, coach to Steve Jobs and the Google founders and many others. And so Trillion Dollar Coach is a great book. Uh, his co-author on Learned Excellence is Dr. Eric Potterett. And uh, Dr. Eric is a clinical and performance psychologist. And he was with the U.S. Navy for over 20 years as a commander. And the last 10 years of Eric's career he was the head psychologist for the U.S. Navy SEALs globally. To say that these two know a little bit about how the top performers in the world do what they do is a radical understatement. And on this episode, we get into all of it. We pop the hood to go deep on their new book, Learned Excellence, which I highly recommend you uh, pick up a copy of. And um, if you enjoy this episode, I would also ask you to uh, share it with somebody that you respect and admire, because there's a lot to be learned here. You're listening to Christopher Lockhead, Folly or Different, and we are the oddcast for business leaders, marketers, and category designers with a different mind. Uh, your friends at Category Pirates have launched the Category Design Academy. If you want to learn how to design and dominate new categories, how to achieve radical differentiation, and most importantly create radically different futures that produce a tremendous amount of value, go to CategoryPirates.com. Now, as Joey Ramone said, hey-ho, let's go. All right, gentlemen, Eric and Alan, it sure is wonderful to see you, and I'm so stoked to have this time together. Great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, chatting. It's so fun to have both of you, too. Very exciting. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm glad you think that's fun, because we're kind of used to it, so not such a big deal for us. But. <laughs> well, and I assume you guys still like each other. So far. Mostly. Yeah. Not always the case after people write a book together. You know, Sometimes people write a book together, and by the time it comes out, they're not speaking. No, man. Alan's great. Yeah, we get along marvelously. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. We're um, uh, looking forward to uh, hanging out with you, Eric, and your Montana place this summer. Ooh, I love so. Montana. Yeah, I was on, in Montana Chris. this past summer. Where are you in Montana, Dr. Eric? We split, uh, we split time between uh, a home here in San Diego, and we live in Whitefish, Montana as well. So northwest, about 20 minutes from Glacier. So. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm going to do some serious sucking up tea. <laughs> Seriously, come on up. I'll take you yeah. on some incredible hikes. And if you ski in the winter, we'll uh, we'll go. I sure Great. do. And I love bison. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of it up there. Oh, so a bison <laughs> burger it can be real heaven if it's done properly. Amen. Mm. Yeah. yeah, plus one to that. Now, I've got a thousand questions uh, for you guys. But I... I for some reason, I feel like I want to start here. So the world feels 
particularly crazy and maybe more crazy than it has felt in a while, uh, at least to me. And whether you look at the issues in our, in our country, the election, the divisiveness, the incompetence in Washington, um, and then, of course, we've got now two horrible wars, massive rise in anti-Semitism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so here's my question to start off. How do you not go mental? <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the multi-million dollar question. I think, you know, adversity seems to be the new normal, as, as you stated. Um, there's a lot going on. I think one of the things that Alan and I talk about in the book is, you know, staying in your circle. And I, I learned this when I was in the military, like, you know, um, inside of the circle, there are three things that humans control 100% of the time, the attitude, the effort, and the behavior. And everything else is outside of that circle. So as you said, weather, war, political issues, COVID, the climate, whatever it may be. And I think um, people that have the most difficulty are focusing outside of the circle where they may have influence. They may, ha they may be able to affect some things here and there, but for the most part, you know, stay stay with with the areas you can control. So I think, what's my attitude now? What's my effort? What can I do today? And what are the tactical actions uh, or the behaviors? So I think that's that's my answer. That's how you stay from going mental. I think or keep from going mental. Eric, you and I were talking about this just this week, not in the context of what's going on in the world, but I feel like, um, yeah, it's very hard to strike this balance of being an informed person and understanding what's going on in the world, having an opinion and yet not letting it affect your day to day and bring you down and incite anger. You know, so many people, like I just can't get over the anger that we, we see every day. And, um, so I try to do just what Eric does is like, okay, what can I control? I can read about this war. I can read about the politics in Washington. I can understand it. I can have a perception. But then you need to kind of put it aside because you can't control it. There's nothing you can do about it except, you know, maybe cast a vote every couple of years. So that's what I try to do. And so, you know, I'm really starting with a therapy session for myself, if you don't mind. <laughs> yeah, bring it on. And well, so, bring I, your I'll, I'll be quiet. Let, we'll let the therapist work here. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping right up on the table, on, on the couch. So stay inside the circle, your circle. And in, uh, a friend of mine who's been through some very extraordinary tragedy in her life, she calls that uh, focus on the micro. And inside there are your attitude, your effort, and your behavior. Now, Alan, to, to, to your point, and this is something I think a lot about, how do you be an informed person, a person who's engaged with the world, a person who tries to make a difference in the world and yet not go completely nuts. Because when we see what's happening in Ukraine, when we see what's happening in Israel, when we see the horrible things that are happening in our country, uh, many of us, myself included, are worried about uh, potential violence as we head into the next election cycle. Um, and the rhetoric, appears to be mostly getting worse, not better. And we know this kind of rhetoric does lead to violence. And so, you know, as I think about 2024, 
I sit here and I go, wow, 2024 could be a very bad year, a very bad year in America and, and around the world. And so um, on one hand, I guess intellectually, I understand the stay in the circle makes all the sense in the world and it works. And sometimes it can be incredibly hard to do when you fire up your web browser in the morning and you see what crazy fucking thing has happened now. Yeah, I think that um, you know, my attitude is, one, if you're going to be angry or emotional about a point, be informed about it. We have the opportunity to be incredibly well informed and educated about the nuances of situations, whether it's the war in Israel and Gaza or, or what have you. All of these, you have multiple news sources. So one, be informed, but then I, I just, I can't stand the complainers. I'm sorry. This is a, a personal attitude. I can't stand the complainers. Okay. If you're going to take a position, great. Then say, then I would think through what can you do? And it kind of gets back to staying in the circle, your attitude, your effort, your behavior, your effort and your behavior are, what are you going to do about something? So if you are disagreeing with a war in the Middle East and you're complaining about, I don't know, President Biden's position. Go a little further and think through what would you do in his position. That's the hard part. So there's and, a, there's and a, so that's uh, you know, and that's also when you're performing. Like it's easy to sit back and be the you know the the critic. It's harder to say, okay, what would you do, Eric? I'm sorry, I cut you off as no, I often you, do. Go ahead. There's a um, yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, Eric. Yeah, go ahead. There's a uh, yeah. What was that again, Eric? <laughs> you're killing me. <laughs> So uh, during my 10 years as the performance psych for the SEALs, uh, these, these, these men were amazing. I mean, th these special operators were amazing. And they had all sorts of, you know, sayings and adages that they would use. And one of them was calm is contagious. And I liked it a lot. Um, and, and as I continued my work with them, I just kind of iterated that a little bit. And I said, yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. But I'll go one step further. I think emotions are contagious. So back to, to what you said, Chris, I, I think that Look, not to be too cliche here and too crass, but life is short, right? We're going to have 80-something years on the planet if we're lucky, probably plus or minus. Um, there's going to be a lot of noise out there, a lot of things that are outside of our control, a lot of things that are dark, some good things as well. But I think, you know, those of us with kids know this inherently. Kids are like sponges, right? They pick up on things. So, you know, not to get too deep here, but I, I do think given that life is so short, we kind of have to understand that how we feel is almost a contagion to those around us. I know when I'm around people who are anxious, I find myself getting anxious. I'm around people who are Debbie Downers and bummed out. I find myself being bummed. Angry people, I find myself getting irritable. So I think, you know, along with what Alan just said as well, not only just stay in your circle, but, you know, practice those emotions in this thing called life that's relatively short. There's a lot of great things to still, I mean, we talked about Montana and you coming up and, and skiing and hiking and bison burgers and all of that. I, I mean, I think it's, you got to enjoy these things while you can. So, yeah, Eric, you said it sounded like a cliche, but you know, one thing I learned with working with Eric and working on this book is that these mantras really matter because they're easy to remember and repeat to yourself. So, you know, people talk about the controllables and attitude, effort, behavior, but you know, Eric uses the mantra, stay in the circle. And that's a really easy one to remember. You know, let's say you're getting caught up in some argument with someone or, you know, it's really easy to, to say, okay, wait a minute, I got to stay in my circle. What is my circle? So 
these mantras, these cliches, they really work if you just memorize them and repeat them to yourself. There's also something I'm hearing in what you're saying that I'd like to maybe tease out with you, which is, let me say it this way. The way I'm hearing what you're saying is that you are coming, you're both coming from a place that suggests the lens you're using, the mental framework you're using, the mental scaffolding you're using is one that says, I as a person have radical agency. That's, that's what I'm hearing. What I'm not hearing is what I think we often hear, which is we're a victim of some sort of a thing, right? A horrible thing happened that is a legitimately horrible thing, whether it's something that specifically happened to you, somebody you love gets sick, dies, something horrible in your life happens, happens to all of us. Uh, or something like we've been talking about that's happening in the world, but for one reason or another is really weighing heavy on our heart. A lot of the mental scaffolding I hear is about how to deal with it. In other words, oh, it's raining. Here's an umbrella. Here's a jacket, etc. That's not what I'm hearing from either one of you. So I love the word agency. Um you mentioned something that brought me immediately to to a mentor I had in graduate school who essentially uh, said that, you know, there are three different types of people in the world. There's victims, there's survivors, and there's thrivers. And regardless of what you do for a living, like first responder, Navy SEAL, athlete, businessman or woman, surgeon, I don't care. Um, I think in general, if you wake up in the morning and you kind of look in the mirror and you say, hey, good things are going to happen to bad people and bad things are going to happen to good people, it's going to be somewhat random. How, you know, how, how am I going to practice agency and decide what bin I'm going to be in? Am I going to tell myself, hey, I'm a victim. It's, you know, woe is me. Blame, blame, blame. Or ideally, you want to be one of the two others. I survived something pretty bad, pretty chaotic. And the best scenario is I, I not only survived it, I, I thrived as a result or I can thrive as a result. So whether we call that, again, I don't want to get clinical here, post-traumatic growth or just, you know, um, you know trying, to, trying to reframe loss, trying to reframe failure as, uh, you know, a, a fantastic teacher, as it were. So the most important thing I think I learned from working with Eric and working on this whole project, this book is you can choose your mindset. And so, you know, you hear about different kinds of mindset where it's, you know, warrior mindset or growth mindset or what have you. It's really interesting when you decide, I'm going to choose a mindset. And um, I've had a struggle with this because I'm a lifelong San Francisco Giants fan. And Eric used to be a San Francisco Giants fan. But Eric works for the, or used to work for the LA Dodgers. So I had to learn to like root for the Dodgers in the last postseason. And I'm not even kidding. I was like, did that okay, give you the I'm twitchies? Or that's like, that's it tougher was, than changing I'm, religions in, in midlife. I, well, no kidding. Talk about finally you were thriving, Alan. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> My, well, yeah. Hey, by the way, what the hell's going on with this contract for this, this, this Japanese kid? Did you, do you hear how it's, constructed did you hear this I, oh yeah let, let me just say you know I, I i retired from the dodgers uh you know 
uh, on the 31st of, of October. Um, so, but yes, I, I'm not, I'm not immune to reading this the papers. This past yet. 30 for like just yeah. now? Just. Yeah. Yeah. 30, wow, I didn't realize October. it was that, uh, yeah. that recent. 2023 after seven years. So I just, it was important. It was time for me to, to move on, to be honest. So, yeah. Well, and I was, you know, and I've been thinking about this also. I was kind of, I was actually not joking about the mindset shift and me practicing that to, to root for the Dodgers. But you look at such a quality organization as the Dodgers have had over the last 10 years or so, and you, you, why are they always so good? Why is every, why are they so deep on that team? And it's got to be, Eric, you know, you're not going to toot your horn on this, but you have have, must have had a massive impact on that. Oh, the reason they're on. in a position to sign Shohei Otani for all that money is that they've got so many other good players who they developed. The Dodgers. So it's a, from the it's top, a systemic I, I, approach, yeah. and part of it's got to be. I mean, you tell us how how'd you do it? It's not me, man. It, honestly, it is the the Dodgers from the top down, from the ownership down. I mean, we're talking about you know the, obviously the the ownership group, and then uh, I think one of the 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 absolute brilliant minds in all of professional sport was Andrew Friedman. Um, it was one of the few organizations I've been a part of that um, really, I think. They, they focus on hiring, recruiting talented people, and then they ask those people, what tools do you need to perform? And they empower the people with those tools, and then they let them run. So but it's not micromanagerial. Do you think there's something like an organizational mindset at play there? Yeah. I mean, I, look, I'll give credit to Andrew, to be honest. I think that you know the term I would use would be sustained excellence. We talk about this in the book. We don't talk about the Dodgers per se, but you know the importance of when you look at the best performers in the world, they develop a process, a recipe for success, and they stay true to that process. They don't focus on outcomes. Um, you know, the, I, I love this quote, you know, amateurs focus on outcome, professionals focus on process. And I think the Dodgers, again, I don't want to talk to, to speak to too much about the Dodgers per se, but I think they've developed a sustained excellence process and they're going to continue to thrive. Um, but I think more importantly, people can learn from, we all can learn from that. Like, you know, as we're sitting here having a conversation among the three of us, um, you know, are, are we more process oriented? And, and I think, you know, what is our recipe to success? So. It's interesting. One of the books I read early in my uh, business life is I think one of the most powerful books in in entrepreneurial history. It's called The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. Mm. And the E stands for entrepreneur. And the fundamental insight in the book, I mean, there's several, but one of the foundational insights in the book is that uh, the vast majority of small businesses fail and the vast majority of franchises succeed. And he says, why? And the short answer is process. He says the average entrepreneur is what he describes as a technician having an entrepreneurial seizure. <laughs> He's such a great yeah. writer. Meaning like you love to cook, you open a restaurant. Well, just because you love to cook doesn't mean you create the process and systems that you can teach people and you can scale and, and, and that will run without you. Translation process makes the business. And so, um, you know, are you, are you telling me, Dr. Eric, that process makes mental toughness or mental strength? It is a pillar. I mean, you know, we unpack five of these pillars in the book, um, you know, everything from focusing on identity versus reputation to mindset, as Alan said. And then the third is, is really process. And I think when you look at the, the top performers in their respective craft on the planet, 
it's clear they've developed, and I'll say, I'll go one step further, they've, they've weaponized a very specific process. Um, and the mistake that I have seen over a 30-year career with probably 25,000 touch points working with incredible people, if there's a mistake that I often see, it's, it's that when people move away from process, they're changing for change's sake or they're changing too much or there's a, 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 a kind of a run to action without any sub-process to measure that kind of a feedback loop. Like, you know, if I'm, if I'm struggling, pick your favorite craft or, or, you know, job, if I'm struggling and I decide to really make a change, move away from my process, and then I start to not struggle, how do I know why? So I think that when you talk about if this is, is there a lesson learned from the best of the best? It is that when you look at these best men and women on the planet, they will iterate from their process, but they're doing it very scientifically, very empirically with feedback, and they'll move one or two things and measure those and then see, okay, is this, is this delivering the ROI or the, the performance that I thought? So, It's, it's interesting. Um, as you're talking, Eric, I'm reminded of Kelly Slater. Uh, my brother from another mother, uh, Al Ramadan, um, is very well known in the surf world. He's the chairman of Save the Waves and so forth and so on. Anyway, he's had many occasions over the years to uh, to be with Kelly in certain circumstances, including going on a surf trip with him and a few other guys. And when he first surfed with Kelly, when he got back from the trip, one of the things he uh, explained to me was exactly this, Dr. Eric. He said, first of all, the thing that uh, he travels with, that he cares the most about, I would have thought it was his boards. Of course he cares about his boards, but he travels with his own food because he's anal as shit about what he puts in his body. And then he told me, watching Kelly Slater choose and put on his fins. So he chooses the board, that's one process, and then he has a whole other process for choosing the fins and then how he puts them in. He does, nobody else does this for him. He does this. And he said, watching this guy put fins in a surfboard is a truly extraordinary thing. For exactly this reason, he has a very particular way of assessing the conditions and then deciding what he's going to do. Not just with the board, which is where most people focus. Of course he does that. But the fins... There's a, it reminds me of the story about John Wooden, the basketball coach at UCLA in the 60s and 70s, and how he would teach his players how to put on their socks. And there was a process for putting on their socks. And I think the point is that um, it's not about the socks. It's about learning the process and sticking to a process. Uh, and I also, you know, when you've talked to Chris about um about that that book that I think it was the David Gerber book. I think back to my times in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I spent Gerber, sixteen yeah. years. I spent uh yeah, I, I spent sixteen years at Google and it seems like now I think back, especially on the earlier days, we found a pretty good balance between process and chaos. The company somehow had between uh Larry and Sergey, the founders and Eric who came in as the CEO had done a really good job as there was a process, but around the edges, they let the chaos happen and they let the freedom happen. And they 
kind of structured the chaos enough that it was a really great balance. And, you know, we created and built, I was mostly just a spectator, uh, you know, perhaps the greatest innovative company of our time. Now it's just another big old company. But it was, I think, you know, because of that balance of, of process and uh, visionary chaos. We talk about in the Valley, you know, Silicon Valley, a lot of your companies will talk about first principles. In our book, we talk about a values credo. An athlete or a performer who has the confidence to focus on process and not outcome, a lot of times it's because they're securing their values and their identity and who they are. And then the same thing, a company uh, that is confident in its process and not the outcome is because they're securing their product, their product market fit, their people, but also kind of what they stand for, their values and their vision. Yeah, Chris, you were talking about Kelly and uh, one of the 32 incredibly cool interviews we do in the book is with so a, that, a big that one wave, was one of the coolest eric yeah <laughs> a, a, a big wave surfer uh a red bull sponsored big wave surfer named ian walsh um and he's one of these guys that obviously you know surfs 70 foot waves at jaws and his process was very similar to what you're describing with kelly i mean extremely detail-oriented with contingency planning etc and i just think it you know as alan said before i think it's clear that it's these are habits that are built that also kind of weaponize, if you will, a certain mindset. They know as they go through their their kit, their gear, their food, um, they're following these rituals that are they're they're going to lead to performance. Well, like Ian was he he was talking about you know you think of yo surfer dude, but Ian was like I mean he's basically a meteorologist looking he's at really, all of the all different those big wave surfers are. Those, the, yeah, we we have lots of friends in that world. Um, do you know Jeff Denham by any hand, uh, by any chance? The one-armed, a uh, big wave surfer, Patagonia-sponsored athlete. Yeah, yeah. He he's exactly the same. The, these guys know more about the weather than most uh, scientists at NOAA. Yeah, it's it's for them. It's life and death, right? I mean, it's like it's it's one it's one thing to go out on the weekends and surf for a four to six foot wave, but when you're talking about a seventy foot wave and you're putting literally your life on the line, I mean, the tonnage. The force, um, you really have to become a scientist, and, and it's it's life or death for these guys. So, yeah. and so, what are the big learnings? If I say to you, "Hey, I, I want to, uh, in my own life and in my own way, maybe not be a, quite as disciplined or or uh, as an elite athlete, an elite surfer, or a Navy SEAL, or, or the like." But I do want to uh, learn from the the principles. This this idea, I love the title, learned excellence. A lot of people think, oh, he was born with it. Michael Jordan, see, I, I got a spleen and he got an organ called legendary at basketball that I didn't get, <laughs> right? <laughs> so we both have spleens, but he has something I don't have. And of course, what that negates is the extraordinary, yes, talent, sure, but there's no way. That guy didn't work his ass off. There's no way that guy didn't have a massive amount of learned excellence. So what what can mere mortals learn from Navy SEALs and champion uh, athletes and the like? I'll take this first and then I'll, I'll pass it on to Alan. But I will say, amen. I, I'm so happy to hear you say that. Like, if anything, in my 30-year career, I came to this epiphany probably midway to, to late in my career where I was so done, so tired of hearing the narrative 
of like, oh, I can never do what he or she is doing. They were born that way. Outside of a once a generation athlete, I mean, we're talking about the minor, like, you know, 0.001, the, the Usain Bolt type individuals that are just going to be, obviously, I'm, I'm five foot 10, I'm 55 years old. I'm not going to be an NBA center with any success. You can so do it, Dr. Dar- Eric. You can do uh, it. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I, uh, but I think, you know, there's going to be some Darwinian things You haven't seen his there. jump shot, Chris. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> he can't do it. I mean, like a giraffe is going to reach fruit higher on a tree than, say, an elephant. But my point is, is when, when you unpack literally and you listen, you're just a listener to what these elite men and women have done. They, they, weren't, they didn't come out of the womb this way. They've navigated through micro failures, through really good coaching, good parenting, good teachers, good mentors. Um, you know, this, this ecosystem of feedback and, and constant iteration. So my very specific answer to the question of, you know, what can the mere mortal do? Look, that's, that's complex. I think if I had to take one thing to a desert Island, it's incrementally working outside of your comfort zone. And I know that sounds a a little, yeah, a little incrementally. Exactly. I think that where, where, where I see and have seen people make a little bit of a mistake on this is they try to do too much too fast. Um, and it's almost like, you know, I'm not Warren Buffett by any means, but I love his teachings and this idea of compound interest. And, you know, those of us with savings accounts or stock accounts, you may not notice something overnight, but over years, that body of work, you, you start to build wealth, right? So I think it's the same. I think any human being who's willing to be incrementally putting themselves in discomfort um, and iterating and learning from that, I think, you know, I'm going to get political here for a moment or hop on my soapbox, but I think there's an entire generation or two who have become risk averse. They don't want to innovate. They don't want to try because they're worried about failing and worried about how they may be perceived by other versus these elite of the elite. They're like, hey, I'm going to continue to iterate and try to sharpen my craft. So. It's interesting you say that, you know, of course, here in the Bay Area now where um, many of us, if not most of us, are in love with the Niners. And uh, the team is incredible. And of course, we've got this kid who's, I don't know, 23 years old, Brock Purdy. And of course, he's Mr. Irrelevant, last to get picked in the draft. And now he's the number one quarterback in the NFL by virtually every metric. And... um. He he recently uh, there was an interview uh, with him on Twitter, and it was a, they were asking about essentially the haters and people saying this that and the other thing about him, and he answered it incredibly. And what I've noticed watching him since his first game is Brock behaves virtually identically in the interviews when he wins, loses, good game, bad game, close game, blowout. He's, you know, I want to go back to something you guys said earlier, which is calm is contagious. And when I saw this recent interview, I retweeted it and I said, most startup CEOs could learn a lot from Brock Purdy. Yeah, I don't know. Do you recall last season, Chris, he had a broken or bruised rib, played a game against the Seahawks. The Niners were not expected to win. It was like his third start, and he won. And then after the game, I'm a Niners fan as well, obviously. 
you know, he's being interviewed with George Kittle. George Kittle's a big personality kind of giddy. And there's Purdy like on national TV, just calm and steady. And, you know, you might've thought, okay, he's just a rookie, not used to the, the limelight, but no, he was, yeah, exactly right. Just calm and even. He knows who he is. He knows his process. And, you know, I mean, back to Eric's point, the whole point of our book is that, you know, look, I'll never have a jump shot like Steph Curry or, a, you know, be, you know, a, a vertical leap like Michael Jordan, but we can learn their mental approach. We can all do the same things that they do, you know, as far as getting themselves mentally ready. And Eric has worked with thousands of these people. This is hands-on research we're talking about. Yeah, um, we we talk about this. There, there's a chapter we write on, or we we wrote in the book uh, on adversity tolerance, and kind of to circle back to what you said earlier, Chris. You know, there's there's a lot of um, uncertainty and adversity in the world right now, and you know we can splice that out in a, in a million different ways. But there are tools and tactics again that I think you know anyone can use that we learn from these. And you know, I don't know Brock Purdy personally; I've never worked with him. But he looks to be, from an outside perspective, extremely composed in the face of a lot of noise. Right? I mean, that's so. I do think you know we 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 unpack you know pre and post performance routines, breathing, self talk, visualization. You know, it's it's the combination of those things that help keep people composed. Um, and if they fall back to their identity and the values that they have, again, it's 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 hard, uh, uh, perhaps a little bit, but it's maybe harder to get started. But it's the the recipe is relatively simple. Well, we, we've been to, talking yeah. this week, Eric and I have been talking about one of the mantras. It's just you see athletes, the good ones do this a lot, which is to uh, Eric and develop this mantra called black box it. So Brock Purdy is a perfect example, or any quarterback. You throw an interception, you make a bad play. Now, what you could do is go over to the sidelines and kind of you know, talk yourself down, bitch at the coaches, what have you. Uh, and that would be getting off track from the mission, which is to win the game. And what the good ones do, whether it's Brock Purdy or you know Tom Brady or what have you, is like, oh, okay, moving on. And uh, there was a we saw an interview with um, George Kittle. I don't know where it was. But he, apparently he used to have a, or maybe he still does, he has a red dot he draws on his forearm, like a reset button. And, you know, he blows a pass, he blows a tap, hit reset. Again, it's the physical act of, you tell yourself, black box it or, or hit reset. And we can all do that, you know? Like, how often do you screw something up and then you're like, you're mad at yourself at screwing it up. and Or you're mad at that other person for making you screw it up. Yeah, no, and you can black, spin out for hours or days yeah. if you let yourself spin. Exactly, exactly. And the, and and the irony, like the irony there is, I think it's human to for a lot of us to kind of spin out when we make a mistake. Again, pick your craft. I don't care what it is. You're giving a business presentation. You're a firefighter. I don't care what it is you do for a living. That when we make a mistake, the irony is when you unpack the research around that, the only way the person is more likely to make another mistake is if they focus on the mistake they just made. So the fancy term that's used is like, how do we teach people to compartmentalize that? Like literally put it into a compartment. That's a mouthful. I'm a simple guy. I like simple terms. So I, you know, rather than say you need to learn to compartmentalize, I really like this black box. Let's put it in a box. Let's unpack that after the mission is over. I can't let that derail me. I can't let that off ramp me. I need to focus on the next play. 
I may have just bobbled a pass or missed through a ball. But again, there's the, the mission is to win a game or win a surgery or complete a surgery, whatever it is. So I, I do think that this is another tactic that anyone can start to think differently about. Like at the end of the day, I'm more likely to make a mistake if I dwell on the mistake I just made. There's a time and place to unpack it and learn from it, but not during not the Not during. It's interesting. In my young adult life, um, I did a lot of personal development work. I had a lot of Samsonites I needed to unpack. And um, one of the mantras I learned way back then that I've held ever since is an expression like that that goes, stop, change, start. And interestingly enough, in, in my marriage to Carrie, um, we, we rarely fight. And um, when we do, it, they're little dust-ups. And when a little dust-up happens, sometimes it needs talking about, but often it doesn't. Uh, you know, if you've lived with a person for a long time, you just, something comes out wrong or whatever. It's not a big, it's not like, well, we never have to sit down and talk about this thing. It's just one of those. And so one of us will often look at the other and just go, stop, change, start. We go, yep. And, and the miracle of that is often when there's something bad, some bad juju between people, it kind of lingers like a fart in the elevator. And we can go from being, I wouldn't say pissed, but certainly annoyed at each other to it being over in a nanosecond, holding hands, giving each other a kiss. And, and, and we refuse to let it linger like a fart in the elevator. It just, it goes. Yeah, I, I, this reminds me, I, I love this. I, I think it's a, it's a great tactic that you guys have, you and Carrie have developed. It reminds me in the military, the, there's uh, a term that, that we often use called an AAR, an after action review. Um, and it's after every event. And ironically, the sports teams that I've consulted, we've adopted that as well. Like in, in victory or defeat, we're going to circle the wagons together and we're really going to answer everyone who was a part of that situation, whether it's a surgical team, whether it's a sport team, whether it's a marriage, whether it's a business uh, you know, meeting or whatnot. Everyone who was in the room has to give an opinion. What did you see? And then answer three questions. What did we do well? What could we do better? And what are the processes in place to ensure that we do better? So in a way, it's, I mean, I really like the variation that you and Carrie, or you, you spoke that you and Carrie talk about, but well, the whole idea like is how do we a, unpack that? Yeah. You guys are kind of saying different things though, because Chris, what you're saying is, okay, something goes wrong. You, you, someone says something wrong, you're annoyed at each other. And what we were just talking about, you black box it, you go, okay, put it away. Let's stop it. And you can either, for a minor thing, just forget about it. Like it goes in that black box forever because you got a secure relationship every, for, for whatever reason, you can afford to do that. We all know though, that if you have a bad relationship you just, and, and you just cram things in the black box, not good. So what Eric is talking about in a performance situation is, okay, you have an argument, you have a fight. You, let's say, you, I mean, you're a team and something goes wrong between the two teammates. Maybe we do need to unpack that but not in the moment. So right now, let's not have that fight. We're both emotional. We're, we're trying to get through the dinner party or what have you. 
But maybe when we're less emotional, we can sit back and you know examine it without the anger, without the emotion. So, so that's a you can do one or the other. But in performance, we advocate unpacking that box. So this is a great thread. So when we're working on something that we that we want to highly perform in, what you're advocating for is after the performance whatever the performance is, whether it's trying to meet the quarter in sales, whether it's trying to deliver a new product, or whether it's Navy SEALs trying to take out bin Laden, that after that, the particular task, we are going to sit down and we're going to ask those critical questions. What did we do well? What could we do better? And I love the third question. What processes could we put in place to ensure that we do better? Um, in our one-on-one relationships, I, I think maybe to your point, Alan, how do we distinguish between we actually should do that because black boxing this and leaving it there forever might actually be packing shit on top of shit, which is sooner or later going to really blow up in our relationship. So how do we navigate between this is something we can black box or stop, change, start, and we really just can. We just annoyed each other or whatever little thing and we get through it and it's not a big deal versus mm, maybe not now. But at some point, we should probably sit down and, and have the, what did we do well? What could we do better? And what processes should we put in place to make sure our little dust up in the kitchen doesn't keep happening? Yeah, my, my, my immediate answer would be, you know, the, we all have like circles of people around us and loved ones. I think, you know, you want to address that sooner rather than later. Sometimes with athletes and other business opportunities, we can afford to maybe take a little bit longer. But that would be my my knee-jerk intellectual response here would be, look, the, the people who mean the most to me in life, I don't want to let that linger, right? You're going to, let's just, let's put this out and let's deal with this and move on. So. Now, another thing I've been thinking about, um, we've had a whole bunch of Navy SEALs um, on the podcast. I've enjoyed getting to know them. I'm incredibly um, grateful for their service. I, as a side note, I, I, I'm always confused by the number of Americans who are confused about our military. And what I mean by that specifically, I live in Santa Cruz, California. The ocean's right here. And every once in a while, I'll see, I'll be driving along the coastline, and I'll see some giant ship, you know, far out in, in the Monterey Bay. And I'll look at that ship, and I'll wonder, hmm, I wonder what the fuck that is, you know? Is that a some NOAA research boat, or I'm not sure, is that military, or, you know, I'm curious, maybe I'll slow down a little and take a look at it. And one day I did that, and as I kind of was driving away from where I saw this giant ship, I had this little aha, and the aha goes like this. All I had, as it relates to that ship, is curiosity and interest. Here's what I didn't have. Holy fuck, we're going to die. Because you know what? Here's what I know. That ship is not North Korean. That ship is not Russian or Chinese. Because we have an all-voluntary military that lets me know I can be curious about that ship and maybe try to figure out what it was as I go and get my coffee and bagel. And I don't know why more Americans are, are don't understand this, but that's me. Anyway, so one of the Navy SEALs we've had on is a guy named Chris Fussell. 
and he's the president of McChrystal's company. He's and, brilliant. Yeah. And yeah, he worked with him for years and I, yeah. I respect the shit. I mean, he's an amazing man, author, etc. And one of the things he talks about or has talked about with me is this concept of run to the sound of the guns. And in a business context, I've been in many, many super high pressure uh, situations, being investigated by the Security and Exchange Commission, mergers and acquisitions, make it or break it court, you name it, right? Any business situation you can imagine, I've been in the middle of it or something close. And here's what I always wonder. In these situations, these massive, high pressure, high, high stakes situations, where virtually everybody at the executive level is somebody who's incredibly accomplished. I have seen some of the most highly respected, well-known executives in Silicon Valley, in boardrooms, in moments of extraordinary pressure, melt like snow in July. To the point where I was completely shocked. How is it possible? This person, this person is fucking basically in the corner wanting their mommy. And then there'll be another person who maybe you didn't think was that kind of a big, powerful executive who's like taken over now in the crisis. And so my question about this is, what's the difference between those who run to the sound of the guns and lead into the crisis, the most horrible, challenging, high stakes crisis, and the person who has all the training and has, even has a reputation to, and maybe even has in the past, but then in this, for whatever reason, in this moment, is fucking catatonic. How do I be the first person and not the second person? So, yeah, this is this could be in you know hours of discussion. So, so first off, as you know, I got all I, the I time in the world for you, yeah, Doctor. As, <laughs> As you know, I retired as a, as a commander after 20 years in the Navy. The last 10 years, I was the psychologist for the SEALs, right? I was three years at BUDS, three years at the deployable West Coast teams, and then four years was called the, the force psychologist, kind of the, the head psychologist for all of naval special warfare worldwide. So I was essentially in charge of all of the assessments, all the mental assessment selection, development, and enhancement programs for naval special warfare. When I first got to the SEAL teams at, at BUDS as the first psychologist there, I was like a kid in a candy store. I mean, I'll, I'll get to your, to your answer in a second, but I was like, I was blown away because this group of men and operators, it was the first time in my complete career that I've seen and was working next to people who cared more about the person next to them than they do themselves. I'll say that again. I mean, they create such a brother, and it's called a brotherhood that they have. I was just an outside doc, you know, and they're phenomenal humans. But not only are they running towards the sound of fire, they actually care more about. Now, the only analogy I have would be family, right? I mean, we're going to do that for our wives and our children. I care more about their survival than my own, as it were. But when you think about coworkers and businesses that you've run or been a part of, would you would you actually lay down your life for the person next to you? Mm, you know, no disrespect, probably not. I don't know. So my point here is that I am a believer. Obviously, you're talking to Alan and I today. 
Learned Excellence is the title of the book, I am going to double and triple down on my strong belief with all the research as well that people are not born this way. However, what you're talking about, in my opinion, are the differences between states and traits. Traits are deeply rooted psychological attributes, right? And they take time. Think of a stream that becomes a faster flowing stream that becomes a river that eventually becomes a Grand Canyon. So that that's a deep, deep river, right? So I think of trait development as, think of a trait like empathy. We'll get touchy-feely here. Good luck teaching empathy to someone over a weekend, right? That takes years to develop. So when you look at the traits of the individuals who are running towards the fire, as it were, the gunfire, I think of first responders as well. I mean, firefighters and policemen and women, unbelievable human beings that in the face of where most people are running the opposite direction, they're like, no, I got this. But Eric, don't you think that is, that, that, that's learned, right? Exactly. So these traits, this is my point, these traits, I think when you unpack this, when you go to those Navy SEALs or those firefighters or those policemen and women, and you really peel the onion back, they've had you know, it takes a village. They've had experiences where they've iterated with coaching, parenting, failure, trial and error. And that over time becomes this thing, this, this mentality, this mindset. Now to your point, and then I'll, I'll shut up here to your point. I don't want you to ever shut up. (laughs) I I would say, I I would say, shut up, Alan. I would say the, (laughs) the individuals who melt like a, like a snowflake in July, I would make a strong argument without ever seeing him or her that when you unpack their history, they probably have accelerated a career and haven't had to deal with much adversity. So when you talk about Navy SEALs, like they go through the heart, in my opinion, the most difficult training on the planet, but they didn't just show up to that without having traits that allowed them to navigate that. Now, am I saying you need to have a heinous background to be a Navy SEAL? No, but you've had to have practiced failure. You had I mean, good really, coaching, good iteration, et cetera. Go ahead, Al. I mean, you bring it back to the business situation. Um, the more common thing that you see, I think, is not that people shrink when you know the elephant in the room stomps down on the table. We more often is people just don't even talk about the elephant in the room. You know, there's a metaphor we all use, but you can go a long way in your career by just skirting the elephant. You know, in, in in a way, even more so at a successful company, because there are all the other you know things are going well. So, I think Eric is right. Is that what you're talking about? Is a lack of mental toughness, which uh, in the, in our book we describe this as mental toughness is the ability to control the human stress response. And you're talking about, I think, Chris, a situation where someone is melting in a room and going into the corner. They're just succumbing to stress. They just cannot handle it. They don't have the toughness to rush to the fire uh, and they know they don't. So they sort of shrink away. Yeah. It's traits like resiliency. It's traits like adaptability. I mean, you see this in the seals that it's, it's again, there's, there's no, but my my point is in the business context, like in the seals, okay, you're going to be trained in fire. Like you get practice at it in business. I think it's important early on in a career to be very open, honest with yourself and others about, Fires. Practice going into those fires when they're small, when you're a first level 
worker, you know, you're 23 years old and first out of school. Practice that being, you, you screwed up with something, practice going to your boss and saying, I messed up. Because it takes mental toughness to be resilient from that. And you can practice that in a business context early on in your career. Or you can skirt these things and not get the practice at it. Sure. Thank you for that. Now, I'm going to say something and I'm going to ask the question before I say it. Does this make me a bad person? Yes. Probably, I know. (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, The quality, if you want to call it that, that I despise the most in business is this. When somebody doesn't show up in major moments that matter, I fucking despise them. And the reason I do is my personal life experience is that I chose to train myself to become tough. Now, I grew up tough, so maybe I had an advantage. (laughs) Um, You know, I grew up in a tough environment. But I don't respect people who aren't tough. And I had a situation happen recently, guys, where um, I was on a Zoom with a couple of executives who had completely fucking failed in in a disgusting fashion. And they, they failed. Their failure was as a result of retreating. Not competitive. They just, I could explain the whole situation. It's The details are probably not um, germane. But they had retreated from the original plan. And the more they retreated, the more they failed. And ironically, when they were executing the original plan that we all agreed to, the company was performing very highly. So, and I'm an advisor to this company. I'm not there all day, every day. So I have this Zoom with them. And it's very clear now that this has happened. And I fucking undress them. I yell at them. I swear at them. I tell them they have fucked this up. I tell them I'm furious at them. So I do all that. We end the call. The CEO calls me. The CEO wasn't on this call. And says, hey, Chris, um, I think you really scared the guys the other day. You know, so I get why you did it. They probably deserved it. But, you know, sort of tone it down next time. So the next time we were all on a call together with the CEO, I put it out on the table. I said, hey, listen, the CEO told me that you guys think I'm scary and that you didn't appreciate our last conversation. And I got real close in the Zoom like this. And I said, if you think I'm fucking scary, how the fuck are we going to win in this market? The tech business is a business where one company gets two-thirds of the economics. It's proven. We've proven it with data. This is a high-stakes game we're playing. You guys fucked up. And you're upset that I made you feel bad about it? How are we, how are we ever going to win in the, in the world? How are we going to beat competition? How are we going to serve customers? How are we going to scale at exponential levels? All the things that we've said we're going to do when you're upset that fucking Uncle Christopher tore you a new asshole for being incompetent and stupid. If that's what you're worried about, if I'm scary, I'm I'm terrified about our ability to win in the market. Now, in modern day business, particularly here in Mamby Pamby Silicon Valley, (laughs) 
that's a highly unusual conversation. What's your reaction to that? Uh, look, I, frankly, I mean, I, I, I'm immediately reminded of um, people like Jocko. Again, he's a great human being, great Navy SEAL, but you know, not only does he does he talk about ownership but accountability, and I think that's that's really what you're alluding to and leaning on there. The the problem is if there is a problem, in my opinion, there's a lot of people who um, don't like blunt feedback, right? And I think that's you know, Alan and I we talk about this in the book. The val- like feedback is a gift, and for whatever reason, we've we, we've tre- we treat feedback as almost like a contagion. Like you know, oh my god, what do you mean? And I get insecure. Where if we don't have these nodes of vetted and valid feedback givers then how are we going to ever have mirrors to kind of understand how we're going to grow, how we're going to get better? So I tend to be on the side of like, I'm more pro what you just said. I may say it a little bit differently, but at the end of the day, we have to be real and blunt, especially the business consequences. I can't speak to them. You obviously knew what they were, but in life-threatening situations, whether it's the military, whether it's first responders or back to Ian Walsh, you know, and, and, surfing a big wave or wingsuiters or some of these extreme athletes. Yeah, you better be blunt. I mean, we can't afford to, to sugarcoat this. So, yeah. It comes back to uh, the, the book I wrote previously was called Trillion Dollar Coach. I co-authored that with um, Eric Schmidt and Jonathan Rosenberg, and it was about Bill Campbell, legendary Silicon Valley coach. One of my greatest, greatest heroes, Alan. W- w- wonderful and, book. And, uh, and, 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 and you know, Bill guy. would say, and Bill kind of, you know, seems sort of like a teddy bear because he loved everybody and hugged everybody and, you know, dropped F-bombs everywhere. Um, but Bill could cuss yell like, like no one else. Like Bill would yell at people because he was careful in any relationship. It's got to be built on trust and loyalty. You know, if you and these people that you're working with, you trust each other, they know you're loyal to them. They know that your primary objective is not you, Chris's success. It's their success and the success of the company. Then, by all means, you ought to be able to get angry with them. Totally, because agree. you all have this foundation. Just like earlier, you were talking about your spouse. You know, I, uh, you guys have a minor disagreement. You have trust. You have loyalty. You have integrity with each other. You can get past those things. So, um, I mean, again, this is another thing I think people need to practice earlier in their career. You, you know, get yourself a boss who's a yeller. As long as that boss is also uh, trustworthy, high integrity, loyal, committed. It's okay if they get off, you know, if they get off track a little bit sometimes. Practice that. I mean, Dude. one of my first jobs out of business school, one of our VPs would get so mad, he'd be like winging pencils and pens across the room. But we knew because he cared and he was smart and he was with us. So, you know, you get past it. You joke about it afterwards. Hey, did you get hit by a pencil? No, not this time. You know? <laughs> There's a, there's a so term. All of it's got to be built on trust and loyalty. Yeah, there's a term here that that just reminds me of Chris as well called stress inoculation. And I think it's what Alan's alluding to. It's like, hey, if we wait to, you know, if, if we don't prepare ourselves and all of a sudden we face something very difficult and we haven't been inoculated to, you know, how, how we're going to navigate these things. The whole idea behind stress inoculation is to give people a little bit of a bad thing in a relatively controlled environment. So that by the time they face that real thing in real time, they cope better, both psychologically, physically, et cetera. I think vaccinate, again, I'm not getting political on vaccinations, but the old flu vaccine gives you a little bit of a bad thing. And when you face the real flu, you navigate better through that. So 
I think leaders, I think performers, as Alan, I think, had just hit the nail on the head, they're better versed to try to stress inoculate early on in their career rather than, oh my God, this just happened. I'm walking away. I'm going to melt. So that's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there are dysfunctional, dysfunctional business environments where people are yelling at each other because they all have their own agenda and they don't know what they're doing. But there's highly functional teams where the same thing's going on. They get angry with each other and they air it out and it makes the team stronger. Totally. Well, per, per the Michael Jordan discussion, anybody who was around and watched the Jordan Bulls back in the day, if you watched, what you saw was when Jordan didn't have the ball, more often than not, he was yelling at other guys on the team. I mean, he spent a lot of time on the court yelling at guys. <laughs> well, that's the whole diva style of management, which is a <laughs> another approach, which you better... You better be Michael Jordan to be able to back that one up. Yeah, for sure. Now, if I was a CEO and I came to you guys and I said, okay, look, you, you guys are unbelievable. You had these incredible careers, uh, you know, Google, the whole thing, uh, the, the trillion dollar coach, Alan is a spectacular book. People who Thank don't you. know who Bill Campbell, I think Bill Campbell should be studied in every business school. Um, it was a thrill to know Bill. I spent more time socially with Bill than I did in business. But to your point, being in a board meeting with Bill and watching him tear somebody a new one. And the interesting thing was, and I, I hope I'm the same way. It's never personal. It's about the performance. And it's about normally a failure in the performance that was fairly obvious that should have been addressed that didn't get addressed. Anyway. But the flip side of that is Bill was very happy to give you the love if you deserve it. You know, maybe he'll chew you out if you screw something up. But also, and this is something oh, he's going to invite you to his box at the Niner game, and we're going to sit there and drink Bud Lights together and have a great old time because I, I did a bunch of that with Bill. Well, and we have the story of the book um, of him and Al Gore in board meetings cheering people at the Apple board. Like someone would come in with a new demo, and Bill would stand up and whistle and blow kisses. <laughs> So there's the flip side, which well, I think we're also sometimes afraid to do that too. Like, oh, I can't stand up and blow a kiss in a business meeting. Why not? You know, like make sure you're careful who you're kissing. But, I do it all the time, know. yelling and screaming and cheering and yeah, all screaming of the above, yeah. And, but that was fucking legendary. <laughs> I'm a big celebrator. Good. Well, you'll learn from Bill in that regard. So if I were to come to you guys and say, okay, look, you guys are geniuses in this. You've written this incredible book. It's highly, deeply researched. Also, you both have extraordinary experiences on top of the research. I'm the CEO. I'm a founder. I'm an executive. And we want to build a learned excellence culture. There's this whole thing going on in Silicon Valley right now that I think is very positive, which is, uh, we're moving away from these kind of uh, work is it, companies like a family, and then, 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 we're all going to, you know, mamby pamby our way, and we're going to have all this stuff, and we're going to have masseuses come in every, every after, you know, all that stuff, right? I'll never forget the first time I went to the new Facebook campus, and it, it basically looks like Epcot Center, right? And I almost threw up. I thought, okay, well, I'm just. I'm going to get in my fucking Shelby Cobra Mustang and drive it off the Santa Cruz pier. Cause this is insane <laughs> because of how coddled they all were. Uh, so if I was a CEO and I said, Hey, listen, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm done with these mamby pamby family culture bullshit. I want a high performance culture. 
which is what we are hearing from a lot of CEOs now. Now, look, and of course, we don't want to be assholes. The, the, the day of the sort of uh, mercurial, you know, evil founder, CEO, Darth Vader-y type character, that, 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 was, that was never cool. And I don't think it's, I don't think it could work today. At the same time, you know, we're facing what George Carlin called the pussification of America. And so if I'm a CEO and I come to you and I say, okay, guys, you literally are the guys. How do I build a empathetic and caring, but radically performant, run to the sound of the guns, perform when it matters team that can win a very high stakes game? Man, you are speaking my language. I actually think this is, yeah, I'll, let me take this out and then I'll pass it on. So I, I think this is, in my opinion, the next five years, this is where the best organizations are going to capitalize. What we see currently, in my opinion, is we, there are books about this as well. There's a talent war going on, right? How are, how are we going to recruit the best people? The flaw that I see that most organizations are making, Fortune 2000 companies, okay, is that they focus most of their resources on talent acquisition. And then they make a false assumption that the talent is going to blossom where he or she is planted. Maybe, maybe in a minority of cases, that's the case. But in my strong opinion, our strong opinion, we write about this as well. No, I'm going to disagree with you on this one, Eric, but go on. It's okay. Bring it. So <laughs> the, the fact of the matter is, is we want to focus and double down on the development piece. How are we developing or weaponizing people to have that performance, that stress inoculated, that adversity tolerant, that empathetic, that curious, you know, you insert the blank. I actually don't think it's difficult. I think there's a paradigm that we unpack quite nicely in the book to focus on identity or values. And you can mirror those and parallel with the culture of the company, the cultural values of the company. Then you can yeah, work I, on specific mindset training. Then you can work on very specific em empirically-based adversity tolerance tactics to teach people what to do when they make a mistake or life throws them or the business throws them a curveball, et cetera. Go ahead, Alan. Well, we, you know, in our book, uh, In Learned Excellence, we talk about the five mental disciplines for uh, excellence. And we're talking primarily about individual performance. But I think these principles exactly apply to organizational excellence as well. And, you know, I spent 16 years at the company that kind of created the modern Silicon Valley culture of, of masseuses and food and everything. And, and companies would come to Google, and I was one of the primary speakers when companies came to Google. Alan, Alan my, avo my free avo toast isn't right. Oh, I, uh, my first day when I went to Google, I went into the cafe, and there was fresh cracked crab as one of the options in the cafe. And I had been, you know, working at places where you'd go out to the food truck and get a sandwich, you know? So you're right. But the, the culture of high performance had nothing to do with all that crap. Masseuses and food, we, we loved it. But it was the culture of high performance comes from this type of person. We call them um, smart creatives in our first book, How Google, uh, How Google Works who are just driven to learn and driven to achieve, driven to be excellent. And, and when I say I disagree with you, Eric, it's, it is about hiring talent. It's about how you hire talent, though. That's only half hire the issue, talent. Though. I think we're saying the same thing. Like, yeah, yeah, you but, you don't hire. but the key thing is hiring is really hard and to get it right. And what most companies hire for is, okay, I've got an open position. I need someone who's done that position for 10 years. 
I, I'm selling widgets. I'm going to look out for someone who sold widgets for 10 years. They've got a track record selling widgets. Great. No, what you want is someone who, what did you learn from selling those widgets? What are you going to do different? Sure. How are you going to get better? How are you going to incrementally challenge yourself every day? That's the type of person you want to hire. That someone who is innate, like they cannot stand not being in a high performance culture. That is something, it's not innate actually. That is someone, our whole point is you can learn that. But when you're interviewing, you can look for that and you can instill that in an organization just like you can in a person. And if you want to have free food and masseuses, great. But that does not define the culture that you're looking for. Sorry, I got a little heated on that one. I, no, I, I, I oh, love one, it. One, one, one more point. It is really hard to do that when everybody's sitting at home behind a screen. Go back to the office. You tell them, Alan. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, on that one, we could have a long conversation because uh, you said that like a true native analog. And I think what most native analogs don't understand today is if you're 40 or under, you're a native digital. And what that means is your primary experience is digital. Are you still human when you're 40 or under? Um, I think you are. Well, actually, so, this, I, I, no, no go bullshit. Ahead. I'll let you finish. No, no bullshit. This is the biggest change that's happened hiding in plain sight that nobody ever talks about. We believe that the shift from native analog, that is to say a person whose primary experience is in the analog world and whose secondary experience is in the digital world to where we are today, the three of us are the last generation of native analogs that will ever live. And the generation coming up is the first ever native digital. And their primary digital, their life is digital. And my proof point for this is when a native digital comes to your house, how do they let you know they're here? Hmm. They're presented with a very analog problem. I'm at, I'm at your house to, for dinner or whatever it is. And I want you to know I'm here and I want you to open the door and hopefully welcome me. This is a known analog problem with a very known analog solution. And they send text that says here from the yeah. fucking driveway. <laughs> the three of us wouldn't do that. We just got one of these the other day. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. no, this is, this is the radical difference. So my, my <laughs> only point on the get back to the office, look, I think people being in person is a very good thing. However, the number of native and the average uh, S&P 500 CEO is 57 years old, hmm. mostly dudes. And those dudes are radically fucking up by telling native digitals that they have to come to work because they, they, they quit. Well, I, I, I still think, I mean, we will, we will find this. There will be research that will tell us the answer to this. But um, I believe that if you're looking for high performance culture, Look, it doesn't need five days a week, you know, eight to six in the office. You don't need that. Obviously, there's lots of great things you can get done remotely, um, but there needs to be some balance. And I think we will find out that the cultures that are 100% remote will not be as high performance, period. I think we will discover that the data will show that. I, I would guess you're probably going to be right about that. Yeah. Yeah. Back back to your question, though, Chris, I'll just put an exclamation point because I do feel strongly I, with respect to a framework for teaching people to kind of have that high performance mindset. Look, I think it's evidence based. I think it's empirical. It's there already. I don't think it's hard to find. It's the adoption of that that's going to be the difficult thing. How do you get people to believe that 
and to take a chance on thinking differently. And and Alan and I, we talk about uh, in the book, I, again, I love metaphors, but I like the software versus hardware metaphor, right? I mean, I'm, we're all looking at, compu- you know, you, we're looking at our computer right now or whatever. And, and I think that I can have the best hardware and on the business side, you know, this can be business tactics, it can be physicality, it can be you know, whatever it may be. But on the software piece, the operating system, what are we teaching our workers to really help to upgrade, if you will, their apps, right? Their, their operating system. So, And even, I would imagine, guys, you tell me, just surfacing the discussion, if you're the CEO, you're the founder, you're an executive, and you say, we want to have now an ongoing dialogue about learned excellence. We want to have an ongoing dialogue about high-performance culture. We want to have an ongoing dialogue about steer into the crisis, not away from the crisis, et cetera, et cetera. You, you're, you're surfacing it in a way that most cultures, at least that I know of, do not. It's not a discussion in the, in the exec staff meetings. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right. I think we've, you know, Eric and I have talked about this concept of learned organizational excellence and the same structure, uh, you know, values mindset, process, adversity, tolerance, balance, all of those mental disciplines, I think, could apply to an organizational cultural, culture totally as well. And, and would give a, you know, would give a C staff and exec staff a, a way to structure these conversations and assess themselves. Awesome. Now, I want to shift a little bit to the behavior of the leadership team. One of my favorite expressions is, who you are uh, speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying. And the highest performance culture I was ever in as an executive uh, was a company called Mercury Interactive, uh, duly headquartered in Israel and Silicon Valley. And the interesting thing about Mercury, and we were the category leader in our space and ultimately got acquired for $5 billion uh, by HP back when that was a meaningful number. <laughs> anyway, the interesting thing about Mercury, there were no value statements on the wall there were no awards for the culture champion of the month. Uh, there, there was none of those sorts of things. That, there was no statement about the, 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 there was none of that stuff that you, that historically we've been told you've got to do You sit down with the executives and figure out what your five core values are and put them on the wall and teach or whatever those, all those traditional HR bullshitty things are. None of that existed in this company. And, Everybody knew what their fucking job was. And we had situations that would happen on a fairly regular basis where we would hire somebody and they would quit in their first week. And every time it happened, the hiring manager would, you know, often put their tail between their legs and go, oh my God. And every single time the executive team would go, good job. Right. You might've fucked up on the hiring, but you got them out immediately. And the reason for it was the culture terrified them because it was a radically high performance culture where if you didn't perform, the forget the executives or the CEO or any of that, the company was going to eat you. If you were on the development team and you fucked up, your, your colleagues were going to eat you. If you were on the sales team, marketing, whatever it was, right? And so my question is, if we, the, I, on one hand, like we just talked about, talking about it, surfacing it and putting it up on the wall if you want, I, I'm, I'm okay with all that. But how do you make it so that it's, 
in the air, in the water. Everybody knows what their job is. Everybody knows they better perform. Everybody knows this is a high-performing team. Everybody knows if you're here, we're here to win. We're here to deliver legendary for our customers. We're going to kick the living shit out of our competitors, and we're going to have fun doing it, but we are very serious about winning, and everybody understands what the definition of winning is. And if that sounds great to you, you're in the right place, and if not, you better get the fuck out of our company. How do... If I'm a CEO, how do I make that real? Like have it be in the air? I've done several startups. It sounds like Chris, you have too. The startup takes on the the values and principles and kind of personality of the founders. And I think you recognize that, you embrace that. And sometimes you do codify that. Uh, but it's gotta be authentic. We've all read these, you know, company value mission statements that are just marketing bullshit. And then some of them are, there are some that are real. Uh, at Google, it was really e easy in the early days. We were going to organize the world's information and we were going to not be evil. And that was, it was just sort of in the air. And people talked that way because they'd been working that way since the company was 10 people. So it just kept going. So I would say, you know, for these value statements, I think they can be valuable, but only if they're authentic. They're not created based on, you know, what we think people want to hear. They're created on how people actually get shit done around here. Yeah, my, my response would, in addition to that, be I think it has to be modeled, Chris. Like, you know, you, the, we can all probably think of many, many good leaders we've had, good coaches, et cetera. And, and then, unfortunately, some bad ones as well. I've had a few bad ones in the military. Um, within sport so far, you know, my, my work has been with incredible coaching staff and leaders. I will say I think it comes down to kind of a few core attributes as well that ought to be modeled. And when I look at like executive superpowers, if I think back to my military career and my sport career, and now my consultation within business executives, it, there are four key characteristics, which I think are superpowers in the best leaders. In my opinion, one of them is emotional intelligence. And the best way I describe that is like feel. Do I have feel? Can I read a room? You know, you can take someone with high emotional intelligence, blindfold, blindfold them and put them into a room. And they're immediately, when you take the blindfold off, they're going to assess what people are wearing, the language they're using. And here's the key. They're going to be able to speak to that, not above and below that. And they're also going to know their own stuff and to make sure that their own blind spots don't get in the way of that. So EI is one, emotional intelligence. The second one is arguably one of my two favorites is reflective thinking. Are these leaders, do they take time? to actually pause like a chess player. I, I think the reflective thinking reminds me a lot of a chess player. By the time a chess player makes a move, he or she has thought of the three or four counter moves that could be made. Um, unfortunately, I've seen some bad leaders who feel like they have to take action, but they do it impulsively. And then by and large, they probably are saying to themselves, crap, I wish I'd given that a little bit more time. So am I taking the time to be reflective? Do um, doctor, go ahead. Dr. Eric. Yeah. Is it wrong yes, for sir. one man to love another man? <laughs> of course not. Oh, we all love Eric. Yeah. You know, so, it's interesting you talk about reflection, Eric, because, uh, you know, in AI, and, and you bring up chess, which is one of the early examples of AI, um, you know, chess playing bots. But one of the things that AI bots can do is reflect before they make a move because they can play the game out. I make this move, you make that move. They can play the game out with, you know, one million different uh, you know, permutations. I think it's a superpower. So, I really yeah. do. 
Well, well interestingly leaders, enough, yeah. a couple of years back, we had Gary Kasparov mm. on the podcast. What a what a fascinating man he is. And I, I guess I hadn't thought that much about it. But what he shared with me was I was asking about playing against technology like that. And he said, look, the chess app I have on my iPhone, if I set it to the highest difficulty, I'm never going to beat it. I said, you're never going to beat it? He said, no, there's no way a human being can beat it. So that's from Gary. <laughs> yeah, amazing. The final the power, two. Power I, of just, reflection. Yeah, I mean, reflective thinking is one. The other two are curiosity and empathy. And I do think, you know, curiosity, am I ever curious? Am I, am I not settling? Do I want to understand the why and the how behind things? I think if executives or leaders are doing that, rather than just the, the, the what. And then lastly, empathy. Again, soft skill, but man, oh man, just being able to temporarily park your own perspective to understand the perspective of other. I, I think you know these core four horsemen, if you will, coupled with things that Alan has talked about, trust, respect, compromise, communication. I actually think leadership by and large, isn't that difficult if you just stay true back to the back to the process, the recipe of what are we trying to do? So and that process can start with the hiring, Eric. Like you can hire, you can look for empathy, you can look for all of those factors. If you and you I can agree. structure that into a scaled hiring process. I don't disagree, Alan. I think that, you know, maybe you misinterpreted what I was saying. I look at the end of the uh, day. I just like to say I'm disagreeing with you. It's well, fun. that's it's okay. At the end of the day, I, I I, I like this metaphor of building a sword. You have to start with the right steel, right? Or the, the, the flaws are going to be exposed in battle. What I'm saying is, let's assume that companies are hiring the right steel. Now, how are we sharpening that steel? That's the key difference. How are we developing that steel? So, And, and Alan, I want to maybe tease out something there. So if we say what we're, what we're looking for are the, these four things, the four horsemen, emotional intelligence, reflective thinking, Amen, hallelujah, curiosity, and empathy. You believe, uh, Alan, that we could create a highly scalable, highly repeatable, uh, very transparent and open and hopefully uh, deeply based on merit and equality, not equity. We could have that conversation if you want. Um, hiring process that would optimize for who is the most meritous as it relates to those four key attributes at scale? We, we can do that today. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you look at what Laszlo Bach created at Google when I was there was very similar, very scaled hiring process that did not over-index on just skills and experience. But, you know, there was an equal aspect of intellectual curiosity, um, I don't think we we necessarily looked at empathy, but there was an aspect of how good a team player you are. Uh, so yes, absolutely. I mean, like, like how many times when you go on an interview, uh, a job interview, they will say, "Okay, uh, tell me about this experience here." Well, I built this and I sold that and I did that. Okay, tell me about this, and it's all based about experience and accomplishment. And to Eric's point. Some of the question could be is, okay, how did you do that? And when, how did you do that? I'm not looking like I did this. I might be looking at, okay, well, I worked with this person and that person. So what you're listening for is, oh, did you build a team? Another thing you might ask is, 
What did you learn from that? And that will stop people because they're, oh, because uh, what you want are people who have learned. Curious people will learn from something and get better. So these are some simple interview tricks that you absolutely can, can interview for those, um, you know, those capabilities that are beyond skills and experience. I can go down a rabbit hole here for days, but there are some great psychometric tools that are reliable and valid that also aren't, are, it's not hard to tap these traits if it's done reliably and validly with certain instruments. So that, that, that part's easier um, than, than one might think. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, I, I could talk to the two of you guys for, we, we could do a 76-hour uh, mini series if you want. Um, but I also want to be in. respectful of your time. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? I mean, it's been great chatting with you, to be honest, from my perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would just, I would end by just saying like anything that we can do to dispel the narrative of I can never do what he or she is doing. I'm, you know, Alan and I, I think have written a relatively, uh, reasonably good book based on research and, and even better than the research are a wide myriad of interviews. I mean, we have 32 of incredible performing. I mean, literally I have to take my hats off to these. I mean, Carly Lloyd, Nathan Chen, we have CIA, we have firefighters, uh, Cirque du Soleil acrobats, a congressman. And the whole idea was to kind of, you know, take a multifaceted approach at what America looks like on the high performance side and when you unpack their stories, or more importantly, they unpack their own stories, it is clear as day that how they've become what they have become was learned. And I think that's that's a message I just want you to, you know, I love this discussion, but anyone can. Yeah, I would just add that uh, everybody's a performer. You know, we may not be singers or dancers or athletes, but we perform at work. We perform in our community. Yeah. We perform in our families. and. We would mostly like to do it better. People would like to get better, and so these are these mental disciplines. Uh, my one thing I would add is is um, I'm, you know obviously I'm, I guess I'm trying to pitch a book, but I wish this is the sort of stuff I had reviewed in my twenties, you know, in my career, and then be deliberate about it. Like be deliberate about um, going into the fire, you know, uh, taking on risks and learning from it, and realizing that's actually what you're doing is developing mental toughness, developing mindset. Um, and I, you know, so I hope that uh, our book could help people do that. And Chris, the other thing I'll say is get your tail up to Montana anytime. You and Carrie are welcome. We'll do some hiking. We'll do some huckleberry picking and uh, skiing. Whatever huckleberry you want. picking. Amen. It's you know, my, my wife, Carrie, uh, her family owns and operates the last working orchard in San Jose, California. Of huckleberries? Oh, no, no not huckleberries, but, oh, but apricots. Oh, mostly okay. stone fruit. I was going to uh, say, huckleberries are his, one of In his mid-90s, and his father bought the property, and everybody else sold out except us. Wow. And Carrie and uh, my nephew Jason uh, with her father, my father-in-law, in his 90s, um, run the family business. When I was- and My uh, wife's- my wife's side of the family has a peach farm in Marysville, California. Now we're talking. Well, we can, we, are we can connect over peaches. stone fruit. Because when I was a, a kid, we used to go down to South San Jose, Almaden Valley and pick apricots. Well, wow. you can come down to our farm and get some apricots anytime we want, provided they're in season, of course, because we have apricots and plums and pluots and peaches and, you know, mostly famous for stone fruit. But um, yeah. 
Uh, I would love to take you up on that. Anytime. I hope seriously. you mean it. Because uh, let's Montana. do the next conversation up there. Uh, seriously, I'll host it and we'll uh, rock and roll for sure. So I'll buy the first um, uh, forty-seven beers. I'm in, <laughs> gentlemen. I can't thank you enough. I also, I really want to thank you for writing your book. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people who try to talk about this stuff, and they're just pulling garbage out their ass. When guys like you put together a book like this, it's a very serious piece of work. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you so much for this time. You're both welcome back anytime you want. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. Really appreciate, appreciate the conversation. Thank you both. Well, there they are. Alan Eagle and Dr. Eric Potterat. The new book is called Learned Excellence, Mental Disciplines for Leading and Winning from the World's Top Performers. The book's called Learned Excellence. I highly recommend picking up a copy today. All right. We would like to thank, we would like to thank you for your time and attention. It means the world to all of us here. And we would deeply appreciate it if you spread this podcast on social media because word of mouth was, is, and always will be the greatest form of marketing. And we deeply appreciate your WOM. Our friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check them out at A-T-R-E. .net. And our friends at Flow Kiosks are the leaders in iPad kiosks. If you want to engage digitally in a physical space with an iPad, check out flowkiosk.com. And our friends at Clary are the world's leading revenue platform. If you want to uh, solve revenue leak and produce a breakthrough in your revenue end-to-end across your enterprise, check out clary.com. Today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. If you're into marketing, we also uh, recommend you check out our other podcast. It's more of an instructional kind of a thing focused on category design and marketing called Lockhead on Marketing. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast. It's one of my top favorites. It's called Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do our technical execution, and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. You can check those out at Lockhead.com as well. Uh, Click-throughs. If you want to click through and figure out how you can buy Learned Excellence, go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. The, Bo- the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ, do our web development, and Cedric Biros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weedon Jack, and our, th- our, our accounts are <laughs> three balance sheets to the wind. Don't forget, Category Pirates makes a wonderful gift. And remember, we will either have real dialogue or we will have real violence. Now is time for a breakthrough in real, unedited, authentic dialogue. And it turns out, podcasts are the only real platform for that. Uh, Remember, the left lane is the fast lane. Please get out of the left-hand lane. Listen to Leonard Cohen. Dolly Parton was right. Thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And thank you, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin. This oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Uh, today, our deepest apologies go to Scott Amalonic, editor of Stink, uh, I mean, Inc. magazine. Sorry, Scotty. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your difference.